From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It can be a deadly combination mixing prescription drugs and alcohol, and young people are doing just that. This is not about the opioid crisis. It's not about substance abuse or addiction. It's about the current party culture that our kids are living in today. Jenny Soper's son, a DU student, died after mixing alcohol and Xanax over a summer break. Now she's raising awareness of an issue she used to be oblivious to. Then, did a presidential candidate from Colorado qualify for the Democratic debates on a fluke? Michael Bennett qualified for the debate at the end of this month because of voters who said they didn't know who he was. And later, when an armored bulldozer tore through a Colorado town, we reflect on the destructive rampage through Granby 15 years ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a parent's worst nightmare, getting a call that their child is being taken to the hospital. Jenny Soper got that call in 2015. Her son, Clay, was home for the summer from the University of Denver. He'd gone to a party the night before where he combined alcohol and Xanax. By the time Jenny got to the hospital, Clay was dead. Now, Jenny Soper spends her time educating young people about the dangers of mixing prescription drugs and alcohol. There's a new documentary about Clay's death called If They Had Known, and this film is making rounds at high schools and colleges across the country. Jenny, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. What kind of person was Clay? Tell us about him. Well, the first word you'd use to describe Clay would be fun. He was just a great time. He loved people. He made people feel great. He was uh, engaged. He was active. He was an athlete. He was a student. He was just an all-around good kid. Did he make you laugh? Every single day. Every single day. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if he had a history of substance abuse that you were aware of? He did not. And that actually is something that we focus very much on in this documentary, that this is not about – the opioid crisis. It's not about substance abuse or addiction. It's about the current party culture that our kids are living in today. Clay was a typical kid. You know, he went to parties. He was very social. He had a lot of friends. But he did not have a substance abuse or addiction problem. Help us understand then what about the party culture led to his demise? Well, when something like this happens, you think about this every second of every day. How could this have happened? And the party culture today has gotten away from our kids. Um, Our kids have been raised in a society where if you have an interest in something, if you play soccer, you not only play soccer, you play on three soccer teams, you have personal trainers, you play year-round, you do everything to the 10th degree. And that could be anything that your interest might be. So I think our kids, our students are taking that same philosophy and applying it to their party culture. Gosh, I think of that line, what is it, work hard, play hard. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think they have access to things today that, you know, they are just completely unaware of the dangers surrounding them. And that was very much Clay's situation. Yeah. So if you, you've dedicated yourself to education around recreationally mixing prescription drugs and alcohol. How big of an issue is this in youth culture, party culture? It is incredibly common. And it's in pretty much every high school and college across the country we are finding out. And if 
parents are unaware of it. The people who are aware of it are the students. They see it at every party. They know that this is happening in their world. What form does it take or like what does it look like at a party? What have you gleaned about this? Our kids, again, we've kind of raised them if they have a, quote, flaw of some sort, if they have an attention deficit disorder, if they have some anxiety, some depression. We tend to treat it with medication these days. So, so many of our students are on medications for these things. But they've never been told or instructed about the dangers of mixing those medications with alcohol, nor have the parents. So that's one side. But then the next side is that they actually have access to these things through they share, they can purchase them on the internet. It's you know, access is is not the issue. They can find it if they want it. The problem is they have no idea that they're putting themselves at risk by mixing these two things. So that's interesting. Your message is not Lock all the cabinets. We have to get these out of kids' hands. You see that as something of an inevitability. The question is the education around it. Correct. I mean, you know, our whole focus is reaching students and creating dialogue among students so that when they're out on Friday or Saturday night or Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever night they're out, if they see this, they have education now and they know that this is a dangerous thing to do. Clay didn't have that education. None of his friends did. You know, a whole bunch of kids did the same thing that night, and they survived, and they're now living with the burden of why did we live, and Clay didn't. Okay, in this new film, some of Clay's friends describe how hard it was to tell that he was having an adverse reaction to the combination of Xanax and alcohol at this party. Multiple times I ran into Clay throughout the night, and Clay loved to kind of be the lively one, the head of the show, and he still was so comprehensive and sociable and no one no one thought that he was like he he was too f-ed up at that point clay was a little bit too messed up you know he he was stumbling um slurred speech all these were normal parts of what i would consider drinking but xanax did play as you can tell a, a big role in this i mean those are just the signs of inebriation right and so you wouldn't think twice necessarily at a party. Help us understand this. So the bottom line is when Clay mixed Xanax with alcohol, alcohol is a depressant, Xanax is a depressant. It caused his respiratory system and heart to just slow to a stop. And no one knew, no one had any idea. He was joking as he climbed up to bed to put himself to bed that night. And once they put him to bed and left him alone, he just slowly slowed to a halt. And this is the kind of thing that they had no idea. They knew that he had mixed the two, mm. but they had no idea that that could potentially be a fatal situation. What other kinds of drugs are we talking about that people mix? We actually work very hard not to specifically focus on one drug, but to say prescription drugs. In because, general. yes, it could be any, a lot of prescription drugs can result in. Yeah, right. And you, kind of if you give too specific a list, there's the subtle implication, oh, everything off the list is fine. Right. There's just been a shift in party culture to use prescription drugs recreationally, and that's the message we're really focused on. They are not meant for recreational use. How do you actually get change through education? Shortly after Clay's death, a group, like 25 or 30 of his really good friends who were with him the night he died gathered at our house for support. And, you know, these were 20-year-old kids. These weren't 
little kids. And so they they sat there and they just really struggled with how did this even happen? We had no idea. That theme just kept being repeated. We had, we didn't know. He didn't know. And his friends really said, we want to do something. We want, we want to make Clay's death have a purpose. And that's really how this film came to be. It was because of his contemporaries that wanted to help make a change. But when they decided to do this, they said, we don't want this to be a typical health film that we just go and don't listen to and walk away. We want this to be spoken by us. We want to talk to other students in our vernacular. We want them to understand truly how this happened and how it could happen to anyone. So that's really the whole theme of the film. It's it's, it's not an adult wagging a finger. No, it's a very hard film for students to watch. And Time and time again, at the end of showings, student showings and community showings, the auditorium is left completely silent. And we hear from colleges and high schools across the country that this is a unique thing, that, you know, this film truly rattles the students in a sense that they look at it and they think, wow, that that could have been myself or my friend. It's so interesting that so soon after your son's death, uh people who were kind of present at the scene and part of that party came to sit with you. Were you mad at them? That's a question we get often, actually. And um, no, we weren't mad at them. And I don't even know why, but we weren't. I think it's because I don't blame these kids for what happened. I blame the lack of knowledge they had. Does this stop with the film? Or do you hope to offer things around the film to kind of support the dialogues you want to create? Thank you for asking me that question. So we have worked very hard to put together, we call it our documentary program kit. And it is a complete kit that any high school or college who licenses a film receives. And it is a step-by-step guide for how to hold a panel discussion directly following the film to be able to help schools walk through that. Was there any part of you that wanted to keep this quiet or any part of you that might have felt embarrassed about this? You know, when something like this happens, you realize you have two options. You can either sit silent and hide behind the circumstances of a death like this, or you can choose to speak up and try to help create change and save lives. And Clay was a tremendous connector with people. He connected with people like nobody else. And we felt like this was an opportunity to allow him to continue to connect with people and hopefully save lives. Thank you, Jenny, for being with us. Thank you very much for having us. Jenny Soper's son, Clay, a student at DU, died after mixing Xanax and alcohol. This was at a party in 2015 while he was on summer break. The new educational film about his death is called If They Had Known. A fluke may have landed U.S. Senator Michael Bennett in the Democratic presidential debates. To qualify, candidates either had to secure 65,000 individual donors or get at least 1% support in an approved national poll. Colorado's senior senator did the latter. But when CNN political analyst Harry Enten dug into the data, he came across a mystery. 
Yeah, what's so interesting is if you look at our latest CNN national poll, what you see is that less than 50% of voters nationwide have actually heard of who Michael Bennett was. But let's break that down. So he got 1% on our national poll, which gets him into the debates because you need at least 1% in three qualifying polls as designated by the Democratic National Committee. And I looked at who this 1% of voters are. Among those who knew who Michael Bennett was, he got 0% of the national primary vote when Democratic voters nationwide were asked, who would you vote for in the Democratic primary? But among those who said previously that they didn't know who Michael Bennett was, they could not form an opinion of him. They had never heard of him. He was able to get 2% of the national Democratic primary vote. So overall, that created that 1% that he was able to get. In other words, Michael Bennett qualified for the debate at the end of this month because of voters who said they didn't know who he was. Those who knew who Michael Bennett was were not likely to vote for him. Those who didn't were. How, how do we explain this? Uh, it's really one of the more bizarre things I would have seen. I would say a few things. Number one, when we ask the question about do you know who this person is, we don't give their title. When we do ask about them in the ballot test, who would you vote for in the Democratic primary, we do, in fact, say he's the senator from Colorado. So it could be that people's memories were sort of triggered when they heard, oh, yeah, he's the guy from Colorado, that senator. Or it could simply be the case that, wait a minute, I was just given a list of over 20 candidates. Yeah, I'm going to choose this one guy. That sounds perfectly fine to me. Sure, why not? It's very quite bizarre, actually. Could it be a phenomenon related to the letter B? So don't you have quite a few Bs in this race? You know, it could very well be. I mean, look, you have Beto O'Rourke, you have Pete Buttigieg, you, you have Joe Biden, you have Michael Bennett, and it could be that, oh, wait a minute, I confused my B. And remember, to get to only 1% nationally in a poll of a little more than 400 voters, it really doesn't take that many respondents to choose your name. And so it could be the case of mistaken identity. We just don't know. Is it possible that these polls reflect uh, Bennett's rise after his town hall on CNN, on your network? I mean, it is possible. I mean, it certainly is. But the thing is, of course, you would expect that those people who are watching the CNN town hall uh, would, by the end of it, know who he was. And they'd say, yes, I actually can be able to form an opinion, or even I don't hold any opinion, but I have heard of him. Remember, these are voters who say they had never heard of Michael Bennett before. And yet when it came up on the ballot test, they did choose him. But you know what? At the end of the day, I don't think Michael Bennett particularly cares whether or not these voters have heard of him, because what he was looking for was that one percent. And he got that one percent. And now he's qualified for the debate. Thanks, Harry. Thank you. Harry Enton is a senior writer and analyst for CNN Politics with a focus on polling. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, and 18 other candidates have qualified for the first Democratic presidential primary debates June 26th and 27th. An angry man, an armored bulldozer, and an unsuspecting Colorado town. Fifteen years ago this week, Marvin Hemeyer took out his frustrations on Granby, targeting people he thought were out to get him. This is from a news helicopter above the scene. 
He went after the concrete company first. He then made his way down Main Street of Granby and actually was taking out buildings as he passed, took out the t- much of the town hall, took out the library. One of the people on Heemeyer's hit list was Patrick Brower. He's former editor and publisher of Granby's Sky High News. He also wrote the book Kill Dozer. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Great to be here. I love your show. Oh, thank you. You, you start your book with Heemeyer's homemade tank coming right for you and for the newspaper. Describe that moment for us. Well, Ryan, this was a big story for us, uh, tank going down the street. So we decided to cover it. And uh, when we saw it coming down the street in our direction, we went inside the building to wait for it to pass. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't pass. When he got in front of our building, he took a sharp right turn and slammed right into the front wall. I was in there with another editor uh, from Winter Park, and the building literally started to collapse around us, and we turned tail and ran out of there as fast as we could. Were you okay? Yes, we were okay. But I like to tell people if I tripped, I wouldn't be here to tell that story because he completely demolished our building. My goodness. What was going through your mind at that point? Or maybe it was maybe nothing, right? It's just fight or flight? Well, really, my first thought was, what have we written to cause somebody to get this upset? Because at that time, we didn't really know for sure who it was driving this bulldozer tank. When we found out that it was Marv Hemeyer for sure, which was only about 15 minutes later, it started to make a little bit of sense, but not totally. Why did it make a little bit of sense? Well, Marv and I had been on opposite sides of a variety of issues over the years, starting with the the attempt to bring legalized gambling to Grand Lake. But that was all the way back in 1992. The newspaper was opposed. Marv was for it. He even launched a newspaper against ours to present his pro-gambling point of view. He accused us of being, you know, yellow journalists, uh, championing a bad cause, etc. That's where it started. You have a photo on the front of your book of the, the killdozer, as it became known. Will you describe it for us? Sure. Well, what it is, is it, it's, uh, you can see in the background, the Sky High News building. Collapsed. Uh, completely collapsed. And in that area is where my office was located. Strangely enough, Marv had been in my office many times, giving me letters to the editor. Little did I know he was scoping out our building. <laughs> and in front, you'll see the actual killdozer itself, which is a Komatsu D355A bulldozer, upon which Marv built a uh, steel-enshrouded cab. It's a layer of steel, then concrete, then another layer of steel, and it completely encloses the cab. There are firing ports. Um, you there can't. are firing points. Now, you would stick a gun out of those holes. Yes, uh, embrasures where he stuck the barrel of rifles out and uh, was able to fire out of those holes. He had a list of targets. So as, as special as you were in this, there were many others, apparently, that he had a beef with. Yeah, Marv uh, really had a beef with uh, his neighbors, the Dochefs, who uh, owned the concrete plant. And then he just went down the list of town board members who had deliberated on the hearings relating to the approval of that batch plant. And then he had other people who apparently at some time along his tenure in town had somehow made him angry. What was the scale of damage that he was able to exact? Well, by my figuring, it was uh, roughly around $10 million total damage. He either destroyed or very badly damaged 13 buildings in total. It was a lot of damage. He totaled our building completely totaled the newspaper building. He totaled your building. Uh, That must have been an interesting call to the insurance company. (laughs) You know, Ryan, we were lucky. We had good insurance, but many other people did not, and it cost them a lot of money. It cost us a lot of money, too, even after the insurance. What about the human toll? The human toll is mainly what I call sort of psychological. 
the people in Granby didn't really understand why Marv did this because let me just be clear no one was killed yes and no one was seriously injured no one was killed or seriously injured except for Marv he killed himself at the right. end of the rampage i mean that's an amazing idea that with that much destruction no one lost their lives well it's kind of a miracle he did shoot at people he shot at Cody Dochev he shot at three police officers he actually tried to blow up the town shooting at propane tanks in eastern Granby and then shooting at a nearby electrical transformer in an attempt to ignite the gas escaping from the tanks. Luckily, he did not hit any of the tanks. He did leave behind quite a bit of evidence, writings, even recordings. So here's Hemeyer from tapes he left behind. God built me for this job. He rewarded me for 45 50 years with the lifestyle that I am so thankful for. And, and it's unfortunate, the poor people in Granby, so many of them were so jealous of my lifestyle that I could come and go as I pleased. Well, God blessed me in advance for the task that I am about to undertake. What else did he leave behind that gave you some sense of what was going on in his head? Well, he also left behind a series of writings that he left in the shed where he built the uh, killdozer. And it starts out with things like, if only Cody had bought my property for $66,000, I wouldn't have to be so unreasonable. And it just went down the list. He highlighted his beefs uh, with the town council, with uh, the local district judge who did not uh, rule in favor of his lawsuit against the town. He talks about me in his writings it's a very sort of candid revelation of his twisted motives behind this uh, action. Had he had a criminal record before? No criminal record. There were a few civil actions, but nothing major. Do you think it was mental illness in some regard? I think that an edge of narcissism might have been involved, but uh, my gut feeling is that Marv decided he was going to do this out of feeling of pride, anger, and disgust as far back as 2001. Once he decided he was going to do it, he had a revelation in a hot tub where God told him to do it. And from that point on, he decided he was going to do it no matter what happened. He had a revelation in a hot tub? Yes. Uh, he uh, explains it in his tapes very clearly where God said he wanted Marv to do this. And uh, he was sitting in a hot tub shortly after it became clear to him that he was not going to win his case against the batch plant and probably not win his lawsuit. During the attack, you saw a young man pumping his fist in the air, cheering the tank on. And that cheering never really stopped. I mean, tell us more about the support for Hemeyer. Well, it started almost immediately. Not only did I see that guy kind of walking down the street celebrating the violence of it all. Uh, at that moment, there was a radio bro broadcast going on where a woman was defending Hemeyer as a nice guy, a teddy bear of a guy who would only do this and attack people's property, not try to hurt people. It went crazy from there. Uh, immediately, there was a, a blog uh, posted by a guy in Arizona called No BS News, where he basically says that uh, Marv was a victim of corrupt town government and that uh, uh, the police uh, actually killed him, that he didn't kill himself, that uh, the whole town was corrupt, that Marv was justified, that he wasn't trying to hurt people, that he was only just trying to damage property. This just took off. Here are your words from the book. Hemeyer morphed into a hero who typified the image of the lone American patriot standing up to the intrusions of government and the media with guns, God and armed and armored bulldozer and a list of grievances. Uh, we found YouTube videos with titles like Marvin Hemeyer's Valiant Last Stand and uh, 
he's celebrated in this rather hard-to-listen-to punk song. little hard to make out the lyrics, but sometimes you just want to knock it all down, plow your whole town into the ground. Is there something to learn in this political moment from what happened in Granby? Because it it feels like a moment in which it's very in vogue to talk about um, just the overreach of government or the, you know, government in our lives or you know, the swamp. Yes. I mean, Ryan, I really think that what's going on here is that with Hemeyer, people have a predisposition to have a gripe with government, whether it's over a speeding ticket, whether it's over a petty battle over something with the town hall. And, and maybe this is a love of the little guy. I mean, that right. goes back to David and Goliath. It does come back to that typical trope. But then you get people creating these false narratives to justify the violent actions. And that's what's really disturbing about this. I sat through all the hearings. I was there. I knew Marv. Let me tell you, the town wasn't corrupt. The town wasn't out to get him. They've been over backwards to try to work with him, and this is what they got. So the spin is what's really dangerous, you think. Exactly. It's the way people perceive the incident and how they glorify him into a hero. That's the issue. Part of what you want to achieve with this book, Killdozer, is to set the record straight, uh, get rid of some of the myth. Yeah, it, it is an attempt. Uh, I'll tell you, I just saw a posting uh, based on a piece in a a thing called Out There Colorado. The first eight responses were, don't believe this fiction. It's not true. Uh, Marv was picked on by the government, and he was right to fight back. And it just continues on that vein, and it's all over. He killed himself, as you told us. Yes, he did. What do you make of, of that ending of his demise. Well, this is what I think. Everybody says that Marv uh, deliberately did not try to kill people, that he was just out to destroy property. The truth is, is that if you shoot at people and you knock down buildings, you're probably going to kill somebody. But he had no way of knowing whether he did or not. I think Marv might have thought, heck, I don't know whether I killed anybody or not, but if I did, I'm going to jail for the rest of my life. Perhaps that's why he killed himself. Hmm. Police had shot at him, right? To, to What was the law enforcement response? And, and was it inadequate? Or Well, I mean, yeah. It, I don't it, know if you ever prepare for the you know, a <laughs> fortified bulldozer coming down. Well, let me tell you this. The firearms available to most police were uh, uh, absolutely ineffective against the dozer. I don't think any rounds got in there. So their response in that regard was ineffective. Hindsight says, oh, if we just had a can of spray paint, we could have painted over the cameras he had mounted on the outside. Uh, maybe we could have injected oxygen into the, te- the engine to, to over-rev it. So that stage of the response was ineffective, although they did do something really good. They evacuated the town and got people out, and that saved lives. How long did the rampage last? Roughly two and a half hours. My goodness, that must have felt like an eternity. It was, and it's sort of one of the more surreal things about it is you could just stand there and look at the thing trundling past you, and there wasn't much you could be done. I mean, I saw... Uh, sheriff's deputies and troopers shooting at this thing, all to no effect. Do you think this is terrorism? I think it's a form of terrorism. People were reluctant to use that term early on because at that time there were riders and insurance policies that excluded terrorism. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing this story with us. Do you, do you, do you have nightmares about this? Uh, I just feel uneasy about the way people find it so easy to believe false narratives to justify their biases. That is Patrick Brower, author of the book Killdozer. We spoke last year. The rampage in Granby took place 15 years ago this week.
thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters today. We would not exist if it weren't for listener members. This is CPR News.